0: Don't be too anxious to jump back in or feel like you're gonna miss the bottom. Cause I mean, I remember the bottom in 2010 and we had about a 12 year or 13 year run up. So if you would have missed 2010 by a
1: year or two, you still would have done really, really well. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to grow their wealth by investing in U.S. real estate. I'm your host, Reid Goosens and so far, I've acquired over $800 million worth of investments on various properties across the United States. On this podcast, I interview go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business to learn more about their investment journey and the cutting edge strategies they are applying towards building a legacy. For more on growing your own wealth and or by investing in the U.S., visit www www.readgoossens.com Today on the show, the pleasure of welcoming back the legend and the OG of syndication, Mr. Brian Burke. Now, Brian, for those people who don't know who he is, is the president and CEO of Praxis Capital Incorporated, which is a vertically integrated real estate investment company, which he founded way back in 2001. I'm really pumped to help him back on the show, but nothing to me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Brian. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, mate?
0: G'day, Reid. Hey, I guess I got to get you a copy of that book for your book wall behind you right there. I, I see it's missing. I know.
1: Yeah, no, <laughs> yes. It was so, he. We just had Chris Voss on. Uh, I've got to get Gino Wickman. We definitely need you on back here. I'm going to get Dan Sullivan for who, not how. But uh, yeah, please, please send me a copy. I'd love, I'd love to, love to, love to see it. But mate, how you been? I was just we we're just talking in the, in the green room. For those listeners who don't know, you were you should go back and listen to Brian's episode, episode number seventy-seven, which was two thousand and seventeen when you were first on this show, which is crazy to think how long one do the show's been going for. And even at that time, it was seventy-seven episodes, so which is still well over a year. So, um, mate, bring us up to speed about what you've been doing in the last six and a half years.
0: Gosh, that makes you one of the you one of the OGs in podcasting. I think.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, my, my downloads won't won't reflect that, but yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, well. Well, I had, I remember having a good time when we did that. And, you know, I was, I was kind of reflecting back on that earlier and thinking, wow, you know, it's hard to believe we've actually been friends that long. And time really flies. It's funny because people oftentimes buy multifamily buildings using three-year bridge debt, thinking like three years is a long time. I got plenty of time before uh, I have to worry about that loan maturity. And here we are talking about having been on a podcast together six and a half years ago, and it seems like it was maybe a year and a half ago. So time flies, it goes by so quickly that, uh, you know, that's just kind of an interesting parallel to uh, kind of what's going on in the markets these days with a lot of uh, maturing loans out there.
1: Give the listeners just a bit of a snapshot of what was happening maybe in 2017 in the portfolio then and what it looks like today. Because I know personally what's happened, but maybe give just the listeners how it's evolved for you as well.
0: Yeah, quite a difference. If you go back and listen to that episode and then re-listen to this one in sequence, you'll see it's quite a bit different. You know, back in 17, We were building our portfolio i'd been uh, investing in single families for a long time multis for a long time but was really in the process of building up you know a multi-thousand unit portfolio we did that and then in 2021 and 2022 started to see what was happening in the market and decided that it was time for us to pivot and do the exact opposite And start selling all those assets. And we have. So imagine, like, since you and I were last on a podcast together, I've probably bought two or 3,000 multifamily units and sold 3,000 multifamily units in that period of time, in that, in that six and a half years.
1: You've got, I think, you've got two left, two deals left now, right? Right now,
0: I have five left, which is about nine hundred units, which uh, is a big drop from four thousand where we were peaked in twenty twenty
1: one. You mentioned earlier, which brings hallmarks of probably our conversation back in twenty seventeen. But even back then, people were saying the end is near, the end is near, the end is near, and you know, short term debts coming due. I do remember vividly people talking about, oh. 2013 was the great days. And you know, 2016, 17, There's going to come a lot of maturities and it didn't come. But now sitting here with the hindsight of what we're looking back on, can you sort of point to anything that you mentioned that in 2021, 22, you started noticing things were changing. What weren't you noticing in 2017, even though people were sort of still ringing that alarm bell, like things are going to, the sky's falling, but now it didn't, but now it is. And, and you obviously made that pivot back in 21 and 22.
0: Yeah, you know, I think in, um, call it 17 people, or 14, 15, 16, 17, during those years, people were saying that, you know, the market was peaking out, uh, the maturities were going to be a problem that, um, you know. Eventually, asset values were going to fall. And and a lot of the reasons they were making those comments was because cap rates were compressing and they were getting uncomfortably small for people. And someone that might have been used to a 5% cap rate is looking at a 4% cap and thinking like, you know, this is just getting ridiculous. During a lot of that time, some people just really didn't know how to properly value Multifamily assets and really wouldn't know a deal if it came and slapped him in the face frankly and so you know they were kind of thinking the opposite like you know things were about to go south but what was really going on was the market was very very much in an upward trend and as a result of that we didn't have loan maturities creating an issue because people could sell almost at the snap of a finger, they could refinance without any trouble because their values were going up so rapidly that those maturities worked themselves out and never became a problem. Well, that's much different today when values have actually fallen. Certainly, they haven't gone up and uh, interest rates are higher. And that means that you know, debt service coverage ratios are going to be more compressed, and and therefore these properties don't qualify for takeout financing. So this time around, those maturities are going to be a problem. Last time, the maturities were there; they just weren't an issue.
1: How much do you think is it been? You know, we talk about a time, and and I, I don't, I, I personally think it's a little bit to do with it. But two thousand and twelve, the jobs that came out, and the lot of the word syndication really started to take form. And you had a lot of people jumping in the pool. And you also had a lot of big institutions starting to view these alternative assets as good places to park money, right? And, and so you're getting bigger groups coming in. There's a lot more people bidding for it, which then drives cap rates down. Does that have any effect in the story at all over since, you know, 2012? I'm just sort of throwing it out there, seeing if you have any thoughts on that. But it just, it all sort of is, is the perfect storm to where leading to where we are today, which is obviously a massive drop in, in valuations, which we'll get, we'll get onto in a minute.
0: I think that it, it wasn't so much that is that real estate became very popular amongst investors because the returns were, were really sharp and because rent growth was taking off. And investors tend to flock to where they think they're going to get the best return. And and I don't know that the JOBS Act really was the catalyst to that. I think that was maybe the passenger, not the driver, that certainly the JOBS Act might have opened up the ability for sponsors to advertise to accredited investors. But for the most part, we didn't really use the provisions of the JOBS Act when we were raising capital. We were still sticking with 506B offerings mostly. Ah, uh, we didn't advertise in, in large part because I'm terrible at marketing and advertising. Uh, so I, I didn't really see that as being um, as making that big of a difference. Instead, what I saw was runaway rent growth, low interest rates, uh, climbing asset values, all coming together to produce really healthy returns in in alternatives and the stock market being at what some perceived was a high or or certainly getting frothy. And then people were looking for other places to put money that were non-correlated to the quote unquote retail markets. And they uh, they sought out investments in alternatives in droves. And you couple that with tons and tons of would-be Syndicators that have that came onto the scene and were raising money from all sorts of people who maybe should never have been investing in this space to begin with. And it kind of created a bit of a frenzy. And, and I think when you look at the profile of some of the ownership that's currently out there in trouble, you start to see that where there's a lot of groups that lacked experience, that got investors that lacked experience, that bought at the very peak of the market and are now seeing themselves in a world of trouble. You know, case in point, there was a 2000 unit foreclosure down in Houston uh, last year that was, uh, you know, kind of met that profile. And you I think we'll see others in the near future. And um, I, I think that's what's part of what's causing the reversal.
1: Let's talk about the, the 2021 and 22 and what you saw that made you wanna start pulling out of the market? Because I think that's an interesting angle to come at. What were you sort of tracking that was like, this is a time to get the hell out? I was
0: tracking what other people were doing. I was tracking human psychology. I was tracking how we were getting outbid when we were looking to acquire. And for example, we put an offer on a property and we get outbid by millions of dollars by buyers who are putting up seven figure, non-refundable earnest money deposits that are non-refundable as the signing of the contract before they even get to go step foot on the asset, they're committing seven figures to saying they're gonna close. When you see that kind of stuff going on, you just see a general euphoria in the market. Mm -hmm. And that kind of an unjustified euphoria coupled with massive runaway rent growth, extraordinarily compressed cap rates, you know, ultra low interest rates, all those things started to point to me that we were in this phase of the market where kind of more inexperienced gung-ho buyers were really starting to take over. And kind of like, you know, I don't know if you remember the dot-com stock bubble back in 2000. And it's like, back then you know before 2000 you used to hear a lot about professional stock traders and career stock traders but then all of a sudden it was like everybody was a stock trader right it's like i don't care what you knew or you, know, you were buying stocks and that's and then look what happened you know right after that it came to a to a massive collapse and, and this was kind of the same thing that we saw coming was like all right if people really want to pay those kinds of prices and put down those kinds of deposits, let's just see what happens if we put up one of our assets for sale. So we did. And uh, we uh, we did a very short marketing period. In that marketing period, we got at least a dozen offers, if not two dozen offers that went way over what we expected that property would ever sell for with massive amounts of money, non-refundable early in the period in the contract period. And we were like, Well, you know, if people want to do that, then they can have it. So let's put up everything else, too. So systematically, over the course of about 18 months, one property after another, uh, we started putting them on the market and getting similar results. And uh, And then we just started trading off market. You know, it's like we would tell brokers, three or four brokers, hey, you know, we got this deal. Uh, we'd sell it off market if you bring us an offer, and brokers were bringing us offers, and we were getting similar results without even marketing at all. We're getting dozens of offers on properties, way over what we expected, and uh, and you know, far be it for me to stop someone uh, who wants to uh, pay a very rich price for a piece of real estate.
1: I completely agree, and it's, it makes sense when you when you see the market shifting the way it is, and you and you were sitting on a bunch of good properties. Why not Why not liquidate? That's the whole the game that we're in, right? You 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 amass all these the portfolio, and then when the, when the timing's right, get out. Hindsight, you're looking back, if put COVID to one side. Do you think, with all the other stuff that we've spoken about already on the show, do you think there was always going to be a correction? Now, COVID's ex- exacerbated, Inflation has exacerbated what we're now starting to see in the commercial space, which we'll get to. But if that wasn't there, do you think we still would be seeing these four caps and seven figures and all that sort of stuff? Or was there always going to just be a correction back the other way?
0: Well, I think if COVID hadn't happened, we wouldn't have had that initial jump that kind of sparked where we're sitting right now. So it's kind of like if we could rewind the clock back to 2019, COVID or no COVID, if they wouldn't have responded to COVID in the way that it was responded to, we would have had a situation where, in my view, rent growth would have been, you know, moderate, interest rates would have stayed moderate, you know, maybe they would have gone up a little from where they were, maybe not. I think cap rates would have stayed reasonable, you know, in the fours and fives given where interest rates and rent growth were at the time that wasn't outrageous. And that could have continued for a long time because the interesting part about where we're sitting in this market today is that the underlying fundamentals of this market are actually quite sound. You know, housing is in short supply. There's an ongoing housing shortage that may never get corrected with as challenging as it is to get projects approved and with the cost of materials where they are. And, you know, not to mention the supply chains and financing and everything else. The fundamentals for housing are, are quite good. So this wasn't a problem of, you know, the fundamentals fell out from under us and that caused rent growth to tank. Instead, what it was is you had this COVID-related stimulus that was created by the government where, I mean, if you look at like the M2 money supply and how really like it was like something like 80% of all dollars in existence were created in the last like three or four years, they created all this money and they handed it out like candy and people started spending it. I mean, what do you think they're going to do, right? So, That started driving uh, rent growth because people had their, their pockets lined by essentially free money. That was driving spending growth, which caused a rise in all kinds of prices, which created inflation. That outsized rent growth is what caused cap rates at the very end to just capitulate and start going down into the threes and then. All the spending just got out of control. Inflation got out of control. Rent growth got out of control. The government had to basically stick a screwdriver through the spoke of the bike tire to get it to stop spinning by jacking up interest rates. And then that is what caused everything to grind to a halt. And so right now, there's no rent growth because it was all pushed forward into 2020 and 2021. So that, of course, there's no rent growth now. You can't have 20% rent growth forever every year. Uh, and then interest rates kind of killed you on the uh, on the borrowing and and cost of capital side. That's the old, that's the issue we're facing right now.
1: Right, and, and also cap rates are the valuations have gone down. Right, so to, which is which is where we're finding back to what you were talking earlier about about these maturities are going to be a problem because you've had an increase in interest rates, you know, quite a quite sharp increase, you know, from zero. I remember sofa being close to zero in early 2022 and being close to four and a half by the end <laughs> you know like it's a it's a big it's a big jump and valuations obviously come down and now but you've got lenders who may be upside down and I think I'd love to hear your opinion on are we going to see a 2008esque type of correction in the commercial multi-world? or you think you're gonna see a bit more workouts happen with these lenders and savvy investors who wanna like sort of ride it out, so to speak, until the market you know takes chills out a little bit.
0: The whole thing about valuation is, valuation is in some form or fashion, a function of market sentiment, you know, whether people like real estate or not like it, and they usually like it or not like it because they're either making money or not making money. Market sentiment is measured by cap rate, and so when when market sentiment goes south cap rates go up when cap rates go up prices go down now the cap rate is a is a function of rent growth and cost of capital so when rent growth is high and cost of capital is low cap rates can be low and market sentiment would be high and now we have the reverse of all of those things right the cost of capital is high rent growth is low that trends market sentiment down which drives cap rates up which means values fall very simple kind of supply and demand type of equation so the falling value is a result of all of that stuff. It's not really what. It's not like a 2008 style crash because 08 was more of a fundamental collapse in real estate where people were losing their jobs, they were losing incomes. Yeah, I wouldn't say a glut of housing, but certainly there was enough housing to a- accommodate the absorption that we had in the markets that were were getting any absorption at all. Uh, but people were running out of money. I mean, I had an apartment complex in 2009 where I used to joke half the units were empty and the other half weren't paying because that was the situation people were in. And now we're not seeing that situation. I mean, well, we kind of did because during COVID, people weren't paying because nobody could evict anyone thanks to the government's response. But it wasn't because they couldn't pay. I mean, now you literally have you know people that can pay. So that's going to support the market to a degree. Now we've already seen, in my opinion, 20% price reductions off of 2021 pricing, but maybe that brings us back down to 2019 pricing. You know, So if you've got a long-term view, you've done okay. If you bought in 21, 22, you're probably not so happy.
1: I wanted to quickly touch on that, what you just said about your 09 property, because some of my properties are having, we're seeing with the sub- new supply, particularly in Phoenix and where you I oh know you're invested in Phoenix, we're seeing, and I saw it in the summer, come to a like overnight. I like had to drop rents two hundred bucks literally overnight. The first six months, you can look back at our ROIs on on our turns and our renovations, and we're doing great. And all of a sudden, something happened in the summer, and I am now seeing a delinquency rise. And this is not just in Phoenix; it's all throughout the Sun Belt. We've got stuff in Texas, we've got stuff in the Carolinas, and I feel like it smells. And I wasn't around to investing in two thousand eight, but I've got we've got blue collar tenants who are sort of tapping out in terms of rent you know the types of rents they can pay and when they're paying on time we've had to we've had a glut of evictions in the last 12 months across multiple markets it just smells and feels recessionary even though i you know don't have the gray hair to say that i've been through a an 08 recession but it's something feels not right out there and it feels like we're the canary in the coal mine that in these workforce housing properties to say well like yeah, it's little great. The, the GDP is up, and the economy is apparently really, really great. But the average worker is not paying their rent on time. They can't. They can't afford groceries. They can't afford you know, to, to keep gas in the car. Like something else seems to be going on more than what the headlines maybe say. How well we're all doing here in this economy. Do you have any comments or thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I, I can't disagree with you because it, those are the kind of warning signals you don't want to ignore and then start bulking up on stuff, thinking that it's not really true. Right. It's better to just see those warning signs and wait and that's why I haven't bought anything in two years and you know I don't know when I will buy another property it might be a year it might be six months it might be two years because I want to see certain signs that we're actually on a path to recovery and I don't think we're there yet there's still risk that's out there I think like early on when all this stuff started happening, rents were going up, but wages were going up. And rents at first were kind of the only thing that was going up, right? So landlords had a little bit of pricing power and we could push rents and and we did. did. I mean, there was 20% rent growth in some markets. Phoenix was like 30 uh, one year. It was crazy. Then all of a sudden everything else started going up, right? The price of bacon doubles, gas mm-hmm. is up, you know, 40, 50%, and food is up and like everything that people buy on a day-to-day basis started getting more expensive, which was putting stress on people's budgets. And now all of a sudden, you know, the landlords weren't the only game in town competing for those uh, those extra dollars that people had in their pockets as a result of wage growth. Now everybody's got a hand in their pocket and people eventually reach a breaking point where it's like, I can't keep doing this anymore. Something's got to give. And and so my my feeling on kind of the rent performance, as far as people paying, it's, it's kind of like, it's not that they don't have the money to pay their rent. It's just that there's so much stress on their wallet to pay everything in total right. that it's making right. it more difficult to pay their rent. Right? If all that other stuff wasn't happening, they probably would be fine on paying their rent.
1: Which is also affecting rent growth because people yes. aren't then, you know, climbing over each other to try and rent that one one bedroom. Which is also another interesting fact. You know, in COVID, and it, it, it's probably got to a little bit to with household formations, and I don't have the data in front of me, but you know more money in the in the economy or more money in the in circulation means that that the kid that was renting with the parents could probably move out and household formations could expand you don't have to live with you know loved ones or, or you don't have to live with a roommate it feels like it's maybe going back the other way now with people trying to look at because I know that we've had more just trying to attract people to, to get tours across multiple markets has been tough you know like it's it's been really s- a slow down effect and so, again, I don't have the data to say that it's it's household formations reforming, but it feels that way. And if you look at, okay, we look at what happened in 2020, 2020 if you had a little bit more money in your pocket, you're probably going to go rent that one bedroom than re- renting the two bedroom with your with your mate or with your, your mum or your dad. So, I don't know if you're seeing that at all, but that was one of the sort of the tidbits I'm sort of trying to hang my hat on at least because a lot of people are pointing to new deliveries and I understand new deliveries are... Particularly the Sun belt uh, some places are really over overbuilt like Phoenix and the Austins but I don't know if my thousand dollar renter for a studio is going to go and try get the class a you know for 1700 bucks even if they had eight weeks free you know I, I just I just I don't get that argument and I don't know if you have any thoughts or comments on that
0: yeah I think it's just because there's less of that movement right so Two or three years ago, there was a lot of population shifting happening. You know, people leaving California for Phoenix, people leaving New York for Florida, people leaving both New York and California for Texas. Um, You know, all that all that was happening at a very rapid pace, which was putting intense competition on rents. And also those people, when they were making that move. To these lower cost areas, they were bringing their higher paid job with them, which was different than what happened in, in previous uh, population shifts. People would move to a new area and get a new job there and they'd be making what everybody makes there. Well, now all of a sudden they're making California pay and living in Texas or, or Arizona and it was pushing those rents up and people could afford it. And that was in itself creating household formation just from importing new households, right? Not to mention just people that were splitting out and you know leaving from their parents and that kind of stuff was all happening. Well, now all stuff is slowing down somewhat because a lot of that movement's happened. Now there's a little bit of a push to back to the office. So people are like, well, you know, can I really leave the area and keep my job? Maybe I can't. Maybe I need to stick around in the Silicon Valley, wherever I, wherever I am. And so therefore, there isn't as much competition for those available units. And still, while housing remains in short supply, it's not like you have 10 people bidding on every unit like you used to have. So I think we as landlords got spoiled during that, um, you know, pandemic era where it's like, Hey, we got a rent. We just did a turn. If that thing's not rented by noon, what's right. wrong, you know? And now it's like, well, you know, it's, it might take a week or it might take yeah. two weeks and, and, and that's why you can't have rent growth because you can't just say well we're going to push the rent up three hundred bucks and we're going to get it because everybody wants this unit. A lot of those people are gone, and now you got to compete against other properties, new deliveries, you know the property next door. All that stuff is all all factored in, and you know the rent growth already happened. It's not here anymore. I just read an article today. Rent growth year over year is still negative for like the eighth or ninth month in a row. It's still negative, and and that's in part why that's happening.
1: Let's shift now and talk about coming in twenty twenty four. What are you seeing? Do you think the Fed's gonna to start to cut and have reason to cut? Maybe probably is the bigger question. And do you think there's going to be a time where you're gonna get back in the pool yourself and start buying assets again?
0: I really would hope that the Fed would cut. And I would hope that, you know, bond traders would follow suit. I don't have a ton of confidence because I don't feel like they're really paying attention. I mean, they're still talking about Runaway inflation, and you know they started to soften their stance here in, you know, the last week or two weeks or so. We're recording this in early January 2024, so we're starting to see a little bit more rhetoric. Although you know now there's some rhetoric about well, they might actually increase them at the first meeting, and then start to decrease them, and it's like it's just so unpredictable and. I just feel like they're using an outdated model on how they decide this kind of stuff. I mean, if they were in the real world, they would probably see that they've done a lot of damage already. And to mitigate further damage, they should probably consider reversing course sooner rather than later. So that's what I would like to see. I don't have a high degree of confidence. We're going to see it, which is part of the reason why I'm still sitting on the sideline. You know, I want to see rates come down mostly short-term rates, I mean, think about this. I mean, part of the issue, I mean, the ten years that I don't know where is it four and a half, whatever it is, but like so far, is it like five and five and something, five point three or somewhere in there. It's like short term rates are higher than long term rates, and that's a problem for me. And until I see that turn around, I I can't gain a lot of confidence that we're really out of the woods and on a path to, you know, where we're going to start to see a hockey stick. You know, we we may still have a little further to fall. And that'll take time, and time value of money is a real thing.
1: I'd rather wait. Yep. No, look, the the Treasury has come down significantly since November. I think it was upwards of five. It's reduced over 100 basis points in in the last sort of two, two and a half months. Sofa still remains high, but that's probably more tied to the Fed rate. And I think we'd all like to see that short-term rate and the long-term you know, become uninverted. Un- but, you know, I, 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 we don't have a crystal ball. I know, I don't think you're headed, headed to NMHC. I know we are, but it's, I know last year everyone was heading to NMHC thinking, let's go, let's do some deals, you know. But I think it was more like that, that, that picture of the dog with a tie in the room with the fire. Everything's fine, everything's fine. <laughs> but I think we're still <laughs> yeah. a little bit in that fire room because back to my point earlier, I think it's still going to be a lot of people with the new valuations and having those maturities really come and whack them over the back of the head, uh, unless you can do workouts with with your lender and and stuff like that. Any final thoughts for investors coming into 2024 getting started before we wrap up the show? Well, I think
0: we don't have to buy at the bottom, right? I mean, you want to buy a trend. And right now the trend is either down or level, and neither of those are really all that investable. Uh, So I'm more in the camp of, you know, if you want to buy a trend, you want to buy an upward trend. It's not here yet. So don't don't be too anxious uh, to jump back in or feel like you're going to miss the bottom. Because I mean, I remember the bottom in 2010 and we had about a 12 year or 13 year run up. So if you would have missed 2010 by a year or two, you still would have done really, really well. So don't feel like, oh, I've got to buy right now because it's the bottom tomorrow and next week it's going to be too high. Real estate doesn't move that fast when it's switching from down or level to up it does move that fast when it's switching from up or level to down it goes down at the flip of a switch but to go back up takes time you'll start to see the signals you'll recognize that it's beginning to happen and then you can go out and you know start taking a run at deals right now i'm not seeing any of those signals yet and um, i can wait until i do
1: and the signals to you again is just reducing the short term rate, all those sort of having the fed ease ease monetary policy and all that sort of stuff
0: i think that's part of it i think cost of capital is part of it i think rent growth and demand for units is part of it uh, I think population migration trends are part of it. I think investor sentiment is part of it. And I also think, you know, the old Warren Buffett adage of, you know, be greedy when others are fearful is part of it. We haven't seen people fearful. Right now, buyers are fearful, but sellers haven't been fearful. Sellers have been like, hey, you know, I'm getting my NOI, I'm okay you know, I got years left on my loan, blah, blah, blah. Well, pretty soon it's going to be like, oh, my value is down. I'm running out of cash. The loan is maturing. I have no refi. What am I going to do? And when you start to get more sellers like that, that's when you can start to feel that we're getting to a bottom. And I haven't really seen that yet. So I'm Interesting. watching and waiting.
1: Yeah. Well, I know you and I are a mastermind. I love to keeping a monitor on that as we Coming to 2024 because I think it's gonna. My, my my personal two cents is we had 2023 of nothing happening and people kicking the can. I think 2024 is the, the can's going to start to need to be opened. <laughs> yeah, those, yeah, and, yeah and, that's and, right. And let the worms out. So uh, yeah, see see what happens. But um, at the end of every show, mate, we would love to dive in the quick top five investing tips, which is a quick lightning round. You ready to dive into it? Sure, let's do it, mate. What's the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? You know, I just I, my my best daily habit
0: is to study what's going on out there in the world. Study the the news, what's happening, economic news, demographic news, multifamily news, real estate news. I, I really spend a lot of time each morning reading about what's happening so that I can make strategic decisions and and hopefully correct ones. And that's uh, you know, bad decisions will throw all your goals off track. So uh, I try to make Good decisions based on all that information.
1: Awesome. Uh, question number two is: Who's been the most influential person in your career to date?
0: There's this guy, Reed Goose's. Ah. If, <laughs> if you don't follow him, you have to follow him. He's like the podcast OG. Oh, He's been God. around forever.
1: Uh. <laughs> no, who is it? Seriously, you've been. We haven't even gotten your story. You've been. You've been. You've been around since the late '80s. i oh, was looking back at the notes from our, you know, 2017 interview.
0: 1989 was my first real estate investment, and and the funny thing is, I, I was like the Lone Ranger. I never had like a mentor. I never had like somebody I followed or got to know. Because shoot, I mean, when I first started this business, there wasn't even really the internet. You know, there wasn't social media. There was none of that. So uh, I kind of got used to just doing it on my own. I didn't really have like you know, a guru or a person that I really follow. So that's a, that's a really, really good question. And I probably need to come up with someone so that maybe I can, you know, have my next round of success be even better than the last
1: one. I got I to gotta find some way to follow. No, that's, that's all good. That's all good. Question number three is, in your business, what's the most influential tool? And the tool could be a physical tool like a journal or a phone, or it could be a piece of software that you just can't run your business without. What is it?
0: Well, in part, it's uh, the software that I wrote for myself. Uh, You know, early on in my career, I recognized that I had a way of thinking about my approach to real estate that was very specific. And the only way I was going to get tools that would help me operate in that specific way were to create them myself because I know what they are, uh, what my needs are. So I always like to say, like, nobody knows what you need better than you do
1: hmm
0: and, and so if you don't have what you need, make it. And so I did. And, and, and we use that stuff every single day. And, and thank God I did that. And I think I did a long time ago. So I don't feel like doing it again. That was horrible. I spent thousands of hours and it was thousands of hours I wasn't buying real estate. So that's really difficult uh, to determine how you split your time up between developing your tools and using your tools to um, really accomplish your objective
1: Right, right. Well, I'm sure we can do a whole episode on just how you came up with that that tool, which I'm sure you don't want to share. But it's it's good to have that ability to be able to go create something and do what you're saying. You're the only one who knows what you need in the business, and so you've got to go and sometimes create it.
0: Maybe now you can just have Chat GPT create it for you. That's right. Someday, right.
1: Last question, my friend, is where can people reach you to continue the conversation that will be in your sphere? Where do they go?
0: They can go to our website, uh, praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. Or follow me on Instagram at Investor Brian Burke. Well,
1: mate, I want to thank you again so much for coming back on the show. It's been six and a half years. you are definitely not going to be that long between drinks, I can tell you that. I want to get you back on at the end of this year to see if any of this stuff we've spoken about on today's show has come to fruition. But yeah, really, really interested to see how the year plays out. I, I think there's going to be some, hopefully there's going to be some changes and hopefully we can all get back in the pool. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking forward to seeing it uh, play out and, and see what happens. But again, thank you so much for jumping on the show. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me here. It's been great.
1: Well, they have another cracking episode. I with some incredible advice from Brian. Remember check him out at praxiscap.com or check him out on investor Uh, Brian Burke on all the social medias LinkedIn and all that sort of stuff I want to thank you all for taking some time out of your day to continue to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show and the easiest way to give back is to give it a 5 star review on iTunes so remember we're going to do this all again next week so be bold be brave and go give life a crack